I didn't get much sleep last night because I kept hearing Ray Charles singing, Georgia, Georgia. <laughs> and it gave me nightmares. So I'll try to stay awake and not fumble my way through. But anyway, <laughs> so it goes. At least the pressure's off, isn't it? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do worship your holy name. We do worship you in the beauty of holiness. We thank you that you're a God who is worthy of it. And we ask that the words of our mouths and meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. We ask that you would cause us to focus upon you. Thank you that you love us with an everlasting love, with loving kindness drew us to yourself, that you have our best interests at heart, that you design things for us, and we praise you for that. We ask that you would glorify your name this morning, that we would leave here having been touched by your Holy Spirit, in the great name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. The Gospel of God, or the Gospel of Paul, is often what the Book of Romans is said to be. Probably no book in the Bible reaches the lofty heights of spiritual grandeur like Romans does. It is divided up into three segments, the chapters 1 through 8, the principles of the gospel, chapters 12 through the end, 16, deal with the practice of the gospel which leaves verse, uh, chapters 9, 10, and 11 to be aptly told to be problems of the gospel. These are arguably three of the most difficult chapters to examine. And when the Holy Spirit put this on my heart, for the first time in my life, I have been scared to death. When I came here in the middle of last week to give the sermon title, I walked out of there thinking, oh gosh, you've done it. Now you can't change it. You cannot go back. And so I'm stuck with this, and I hope you don't feel the same way. But I have never been so unsettled as I am right now. And last night's game didn't help me any, but that's another story. But the Apostle Paul was led to write chapters 9, 10, and 11 as almost a, a parenthesis of what the previous eight chapters and then the remaining chapters would be. Because in this, he discusses something that is very, very important to us. 
And it goes a long way to answer the question, is where does Israel stand right now? Or where does the Jew stand right now? Because what we see in these three tremendous chapters are often misunderstood and misinterpreted to the demise of the faith of many. Now, I'm not going to read all the three chapters, so you can rest assured you will be home for dinner. Because if we did, you would miss dinner, tomorrow's dinner. Because this material is deep. It really is. And tragically, many people that I've talked to personally have said that, well, I don't understand those chapters, therefore I'm not going to read them. That's just like the book of Revelation. But if you deny yourself these three chapters, you are missing the sovereignty of God, which is not some academic uh, high and mighty idea. It's at the very heart of what we as Christians ought to enjoy in our fellowship with him to know that we worship a God who is wiser than we are, who is better than we are, who works in ways beyond our comprehension. Now, you wouldn't have to go too far to beat my comprehension, but God is in this place. And if you've ever tried to know God, it's kind of a paradox, because we can know him. Because if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit living inside you, and you have a supernatural ability to understand God, to know God, to know his word, the paradox of it is that this side of heaven, we can't possibly know everything about God. And as we go through these three chapters, doubtless, you'll walk out of here thinking, boy, he gave it a good shot, but he fell short. I can tell you right away, I will fall short. But as God is my witness, these chapters are not to be ignored. These chapters are blessed with material that will take us beyond just a, a superficial academic approach, but rather will take us to the deep places of God. Indeed, the last passage of chapter 11 goes in that direction, and that's included in the material. But may God bless the time that we spend here so where does the Jew stand? Well, we begin with chapter 9, verses 1 and following. This is a prayer. This is the feeling of the Apostle Paul. Now, the reason it's attached with the term sorrow is because that's what you have here. Chapter 9, verse 1. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience is testifying to me with the Holy Spirit that I have intense sorrow and continual anguish 
in my heart, for I would wish to be almost cursed and cut off from the Messiah for the benefit of my brothers, my own flesh and blood. Now, this is coming from a man who, if you're familiar with the Bible at all, you know that in the book of Acts, that Christians were preyed upon and hated by a certain group of people. Do you know who those people were? Say it if you do. Jews, yes. Don't be ashamed to say it because it's true. It's very true. The Jew has a built-in hatred of people like Paul, who as we'll see later on in these passages, proclaims himself to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Now that's serious stuff. Because Paul was a Jew. And yet, it breaks his heart. Even though these Jews treat Paul dismally, don't they? They're all the time stoning him and bringing him away and kicking him and beating him, his own flesh and blood, and yet he could make these statements that you read here, that you listen to here, that he wishes he could be cut off from the Messiah, cut off from Christ for the sake of his brethren, who at that point in time, as recorded in the book of Acts, and exists to this point today, as a nation, Israel is spiritually blind. That's why it's important to digest these three chapters, to come to an understanding as to where the Jew slash Israel fits in today's world, in the 21st century. It's very important that we understand that. But it's also important that we understand the sorrow that he feels for his people, despite the fact that as we finish the rest of this short passage, here's what he uses to describe these people or statements about these people. He says, they are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises. The ancestors are theirs, and from them, by physical descent, came the Messiah, who is God over all, praise forever, amen. What a list of privilege that the Jews that Israel had given by a sovereign God. I mean, the list is magnificent. The Jews of the ancient people of the world were blessed beyond any group of people, and that by the sovereign will of God. They weren't the most numerous. They don't have a lot of accomplishments in many areas. But God, through his sovereign will, his sovereign purpose, chose those people. Now, I can't understand that. A lot of people can't. But there's one verse I want to look at, a portion of a verse in Genesis chapter 18, verse 25. One of the earliest questions in the Bible. 
And if we listen to this portion of this verse and understand things and don't understand things, when you rest in the sovereign will of God, this question ought to come to mind. And the question is this. In the, the context of Abraham praying for Sodom and Gomorrah, the statement is this. Shall not the judge of all the world do right? I'm going to repeat that. Shall not the judge of all the world do right? Now when the Bible asks a question like that, it's not looking for an answer. It knows the answer. Shall not the God of all the earth do right? Yes. He will never cease to do good. He is always good. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So therefore, and as I read this, I took comfort that God, with his sovereign will, is behind all these things that many times I wish did not take place. And probably you're in the same position, maybe even worse, that things have happened to your life and you wondered where God was. Now, there's, of course, an important distinction here of what God causes and what God he allows. I'm not going to go there. But I do know this, that God will always do right. So his choosing of Israel was right, was perfect. Were they? No. And you'd think, with the privileges they enjoyed, which I just read, you'd think that they'd be spiritually on top of the world. But they weren't, were they? And you don't, again, have to be a Bible scholar to know that Israel had some problems, didn't they? They didn't always do it well, did they? And as one who's read a lot of history in his life, uh, that the Roman Empire fell and America's going down the same path. Well, let me tell you something, folks. America's going down the same path Israel went down, and Israel had promises from God. We don't. And we're doing the same things. The parallels, the pattern is there from the Bible of what America's doing. I truly believe if you put America in where Israel is, with the exception of the promises, it would be entirely true, same thing. And we better learn, folks, because if we don't, it will be a sad day. As it was a sad day for God's people. Israel was God's people, is God's nation. But right now, as part of that sovereign will, they are blind. I don't want to get ahead of myself too much here, but I will mention this in case I do forget it. Their blindness led Gentiles to get saved. Now, I don't know all of you personally. Are there any Jews in here right now? Any of you? Okay, so you're all Gentiles. Either one or the other, you know. Not a third group here. Jew or Gentile. Okay, great. That's what I figured. Since you're all Gentiles... And if you have a personal relationship with Jesus, 
because Israel got blinded and was blinded by of their own free will. God extended salvation to you. You have it. And Israel, it drove Israel crazy. It drives them crazy today. But you have salvation because of their blindness. And you can rejoice in that. And that as Paul said, I'm apostle to the Gentiles. Praise God it is so. And see, we don't think of it in terms like that, do we? My mind can't ascertain all of what's involved in that. But that's when I need to just sit back and rest in the sovereign will of God. Now moving on in this chapter 9, from verse 6, and I'm not going to read everything here, but, or you, again, you, you'll miss the, the white meat of the fried chicken or whatever. Uh, but I tell you, I, really, I challenge you, I invite you to read these passages, okay? Because they'll speak to your heart. They really will. You may not understand it. Oh, I don't. So if you're looking for me to give you all the answers, forget it. Uh, I'll try to give what I can. But understand that this is inspired. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the Christian would be thoroughly equipped to do his task. To do what we're told to do. And that's to preach the gospel. That's to make disciples. That's to train people to help them grow spiritually. As most of you have raised either children or grandchildren, you know that when they're born, it's not over, is it? It's just beginning. What a wonderful beginning, but it takes time and effort and wisdom to raise children and grandchildren, and some of you may even great-grandchildren. I call my grandchildren great-grandchildren. I should call them magnificent because great doesn't make any sense. Because I'm not that old, am I? Don't, no answer on that one. But in verses 6 and following, we see that God's sovereign will incorporated wisdom to choose between Isaac and Ishmael. And God chose Isaac. Jacob or Esau, he chose Jacob. Now again, if you're thinking, well, that wasn't fair to the other two, remember what I said from Genesis. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And the answer is, he will do right. He will always do right. He will never fail to do right. But God in his wisdom did that. And you can look in Genesis for the details. Then as we look in verse 14, regarding his will, 
What should we say then? Is there any injustice with God? Absolutely not. For he tells Moses, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion as an act of the will, the will of God operating in the lives of people. Let me at this point say this, that the sovereignty of God does not remove our responsibility. And one of the uh, often said instances in the Bible where uh, Moses hardened, excuse me, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And people say, well, it wasn't fair to Pharaoh. But it says several times that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Where the wisdom of God comes in is that he knew that. From the very beginning. He knew it, always knew it. I can't fathom that. I can't fathom where I put my keys yesterday. Aren't you glad I'm not God? Oh, yes. My will is not much, but His is everything. So, by His wisdom and His will, He performs His ways. Dropping down to verses 19 and following. Who will say to me, this is God talking, therefore, what does he then find fault? Who can resist his will? But who are you, O mere man, to talk back to God? Will what is formed say to the one who formed it? Have you made me like this for a certain purpose? What have you done? In other words, the the clay says to the potter, why are you doing this? It doesn't make any sense. You're not doing it right. Can any piece of pottery say that in the pottery sense? No. And if you like to do pottery, you have your ways. God has his ways. So as one who is made by God, as all of us are, we have no right nor standing to question God. But remember, Genesis 18.25. If we keep that in mind, would we ever really ever question God? Because we would know that he always does what's right. Oh, I'm sure you're thinking of countless instances wherein you might. I can think of several myself. But the spiritual side of me would take comfort, indeed does take comfort in the reality of who and what God is, and that his sovereign will, manifesting itself with his wisdom and his will, and then as we get to the end of this portion here, moving on to verse 25 and following, we deal with his word. And we see here in verse 25, he said in Hosea, I will call my people who are not my people and those who are unloved, beloved. And it will be in the place where they are told they are not my people, they will be called the sons of a living God. Now, what does that mean? Very simply, the ones who thought they were God's people was Israel. And the ones they thought would never be called God's people were the Gentiles. And yet, 
Hosea wrote this hundreds of years before Christ, that there'd be a time when God would say, I'm calling the Gentiles to myself. That's worth a praise God, folks, since we're all Gentiles here. Long ago, God in his infinite wisdom called us. And you all have a testimony. Probably as many of you are here, as different a testimony as possible. All different, all unique. But the same in the sense that the Holy Spirit of God drew you to himself as part of his plan for your life. And so Hosea mentions it. In Isaiah, verse 27, though the number of Israel's sons are like the sand of the sea, only a remnant will be saved, for the Lord will execute his sentence and completely, decisively do it on the earth. You've probably heard many people talk about, because I've mentioned it many times in group studies and such, this term called remnant. Remnant is a small amount, okay? And this remnant, as he says here, that the prophet said that though Israel physically would be as the sands of the sea, spiritually, they'd be a remnant. Does that sound like anything that something like Jesus said in the Gospels? How many will actually inherit eternal life? A remnant or the majority? Say it. Will inherit the remnant. Because narrow is the way, right, that leads to eternal life, and broad is the way that leads to hell and destruction. This fits perfectly with this. This is wonderful how the Bible is corroborated, the Old Testament and the New. I've heard Christians say, I'm a Christian, I don't need the Old Testament. Yes, you do. We need every bit of this. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Old Testament, New Testament. It's all for us. And I truly believe one of the ways we mentioned this in Connect Group earlier, that we tell people how the Bible is so special is fulfilled prophecy. When Hosea and Isaiah can say something and have it be true hundreds of years later. That's either fantastic odds or truth. Just happenstance or the Holy Spirit of God leading those men to write these things under divine inspiration, recorded for us, preserved for us to enjoy it and to rest in it. As a Gentile, I'm saved by the sovereign will of God. And you can make that statement too. And this is magnificent. Moving on to chapter 10. Well, let me go to the chapter, the end part of chapter 9 here. Quoting from the Old Testament. Look, I put a stone in Zion to stumble over and a rock to trip over. Yet the one who believes on him will not be put to shame. That's from the Old Testament. That illustrates the point that I mentioned a moment ago. That we need the Old Testament to know it to help us prove, to defend the faith of God, 
to defend Christianity by going back to the Old Testament and saying, aha, here's where it says it here, here's where it says it here. Two places. What are the odds of that? And yet, Israel, who should have known better, blew it. And how did they blow it? In the most major league fashion possible. They took the Messiah from the physical Israel and put him to death and killed him. Wow. They did it. But even that was part of a sovereign plan of God. Right? You know it's right. Oh, we say, I wish he hadn't been up there. I know why you say that. I say it too. Who can stand to see that the mental picture is agonizing? But that was God's plan. Not plan B. Plan A. Jesus is plan A, folks. Because he's the only one that can take you to heaven. The only one. Nothing else comes close. The book of Hebrews would be a good companion to read with the book of Romans because uh, the writer of Hebrews says, the bringing of the law made nothing perfect. But the bringing in of a better hope does, by which we draw near to God. And who is that better hope? Take a guess. None other than the Lord Jesus whom the writer of Hebrews is addressing, I think it was Paul, addressing those Hebrew people, telling them, hey, open your eyes. Open your eyes before it's too late. Because later on, the writer of Hebrews says, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. I wouldn't mess around with a verse like that. It's a deep verse. But would you mess around with a simple statement? It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I wouldn't mess with that. Chapter 10, salvation. Here, Jesus is revealed. We say, and brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God concerning them is for their salvation. Here again, shows the heart of Paul. My heart's desire for these people who treat me like dirt. Worse. They treat me badly, yet my heart's desire is for them to be saved. You can pray that for Israel today, folks. Because they're blind. Pray for the salvation of Israel. I guess I could jump ahead here. Israel's going to win. Israel's going to make it, folks. But in the meantime, they need prayer. Because in the meantime, their blind spiritual state is still like it was. And that's not good. Then the Apostle Paul goes on to talk about here that I can testify in verse 2 about them that have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge, which means they have a zeal for God but it's misdirected. And you may be in here right now thinking, well, I'm not such a bad person. 
I go to church every Sunday. I read my Bible. I have a zeal for that. I love doing it, he said, you might say. And yet, you believe that those activities and actions are actually producing salvation. Folks, they may help, but alone by themselves do not get you anywhere. Do we have proof of that? Right here. Paul said that about the Jewish people, his own brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, outside of Christ, actually. They have a zeal, but it's wrong. Is it possible to go in the wrong direction? Yes. If I want to go to Lumberton and I head off that way, and I have all the zeal in the world, am I going to get there? Yeah, I'll eventually get there. 12,000 miles later, if I can make it through the Pacific Ocean without the car being flooded. So in other words, zeal. So what the apostle says here is that these people think that by checking off boxes, they can gain heaven. You can't. What does Isaiah say? Your righteousness is as filthy rags. You can't get there. There's not a person in heaven who can brag that they're there. Not one. It's by grace through faith. Because later on he says that these people, these Jewish brothers of mine in the flesh, think that they're in the right direction. And they're not. And he says, it breaks my heart. You may have a family member that's going in a certain direction and they think, well, they're okay spiritually. Folks, if they don't go according to this, where he says in verse 4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That means to everyone who trusts Christ. Christ is the end of all that activity. He's the only one who was perfect. He fulfilled all the points of the law, yet became sin for me and for you. He became sin for us. I can't imagine that. That doesn't make sense. But it's the truth. I don't have to understand it for it to be true. It's nevertheless true, regardless of whether I think it is or not. Indeed, earlier Paul wrote, uh, so some not believe, shall that make the faithfulness of God of no effects? The answer is no. Nothing can make the faithfulness of God of no effect. Nothing. Nothing I do, nothing you do, can even touch the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God comes from him who never, ever changes. He's the same, always. Malachi 3.6, I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore the sons of Jacob are not consumed. That's God talking. That's God talking. And we can rest in the reality that he is completely, utterly trustworthy. Totally. No change, not a bit. Perfect in all his ways. So here we begin to see salvation. Now, some of you may be thinking that, you know, the word sovereignty bothers me. All right, I understand that. And I'm going to read something that will put your mind at ease, I think. It's down here on verse 13. It says very simply, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord 
shall be saved. Ah, boy, that's good. I'm glad that's the case. Enough of that sovereignty stuff. Folks, that's the sovereign will of God that allows that statement to be true. It's that which makes that true. That whoever, you know, they call Christianity exclusive. I don't think so. What does whoever mean? What does that mean? Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Is that exclusive? I don't think so. Do you? That's inclusive. Everyone. Anyone. Any race. Any ethnicity. Any nationality. And you know that's not true for a lot of faiths, right? If they caught you or me in Mecca, we would be dead. That's exclusive. Not like our faith. Here, whoever Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. An appeal to his people who are reading this then and now. And to you here, if you don't know Jesus, you can know him. The invitation is there. Whoever. Sounds like John 3.16, doesn't it? Sure it does. So here the salvation is, is given here. But then we see again as, we, as the chapter closes in verse 18, talking about the Old Testament again, their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the inhabited world. But I ask, did Israel understand? First, Moses said, I will make you, Israel, jealous of those who are not a nation, Gentiles. I will make you angry at this nation that lacks understanding. And yet, they still got it. If you look in Ephesians chapter 2, you'll find the writer, Paul, saying about the Gentiles, they were separated from all the covenants, separated from all the things of God, lost without hope. Indeed. But... But, don't you love that little word? Because the whole sentence shifts. But, in Christ, Gentile and Jew are made at peace. He preached peace, Jesus did. He made peace. He is peace. And he took those two discordant groups, Jew and Gentile, and produced peace. And that's what we Gentiles have because of the Jewish rejection. Because of the sovereign will of God. Salvation comes to us. But at the end of chapter 10 we have this. To Israel he says, all day long I've spread out my hands to a disobedient and defiant people. That's God talking to his own people. That's God talking to his own people. Would God say something like that? Yes. Did he? Yes. Did some of them give their attention to it? Yes. But only that R word, the remnant, 
Only the remnant. The rest of them said no, as they say no to this very day. No. No. We're still waiting for Messiah to come. And see, we in this room need to be able to take someone in the Bible to the passages and verses that tell them and anyone who will listen, here's what the Bible says about anyone apart from Christ. They're doomed, they're separate, and their sins are still on them. And their destination is heavenly fire. Eternal fire, excuse me. Eternal fire. That's what the Bible says. That's not my opinion, folks. That's Scripture's fact. And Scripture's fact trumps my opinion any day of the week. Doesn't even come close. But here the apostle appeals to his own people. And then chapter 11, where he talks about the rejection both from himself, his perspective, and the history. And he says in verse 1 of chapter 11, Ask then, has God rejected his people? God forbid. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. In other words, when Paul says, has God rejected his people Israel? What's the answer? The answer is no. Where's the proof? Paul. See? Where's the, the evidence? Paul is the evidence. And not just Paul. But look at verse 4. Even in the Elijah's case, in 1 Kings, Elijah said, I'm all alone. God told Elijah, no, you're not. I have 7,000 who have not bowed to Baal. God will always have his remnant. Always. Always there'll be some group that will testify the name of Jesus. So in chapter 11, we begin to see that. Now, moving on here, in verse 11 and following, it's very important that you understand the language here and who's being described. It is not the church. Now, I know that might upset some of you who've been told it is. It isn't. And the reason why it's not is as we go on into this passage where he says in verse 21, chapter 11, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Now, you say, well, the Gentiles are replacing the broken branches. Yeah, they are. However, that language sounds pretty dire, doesn't it? And I know of people who with that verse would say, I can lose my salvation because God says in here that he might take me away. He might break me off or ungraft me. Folks, if that were true, 
that would directly contradict verse 29 of the same chapter, which says, for the gifts and calling of God are without change, without repentance. In other words, they are from God who does not change. So therefore, those above verses could not mean the church. Because if you're saved right now, you are eternally secure in God, a God who does not change or go back on his promise. You are saved forever. Do you do bad things? Join the crowd, yes, I do. But praise God, it doesn't unsave me. Because Christ dealt with all my sins, when? And he dealt all with all your sins, when? At Calvary. Before I'd done anything, before I even existed, he carried my sins. He carried your sins. You were on his heart when he hung there. And that's the gospel truth. I mean that. So when you look at any page of scripture, be careful that you compare it with something else. And if there's a contradiction that seems to be present, know that truth cannot contradict truth. Can it? No. Truth cannot contradict truth. And Jesus said, thy word is truth. Talk about God. His word. His truth can't do that. So therefore, you must look for another interpretation and rest assured the Holy Spirit who inspired the people to write the Bible can direct you in the right path because he has a vested interest in your being as spiritually minded as possible. His goal, his role, the Holy Spirit's, is to guide you into all truth. And he'll do that. But now, so we don't leave Israel in the lurch here. Look at verse 26. The liberator will come, capital L. Who could that mean? The liberator, capital L. Who might that be? Take a guess. The Lord Jesus. He'll come from Zion. He will turn away godlessness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Who is God talking about? He's talking about Israel. The same Israel that up to now we've been talking about not doing so well, right? And they weren't, and they aren't. But one day, God in his infinite wisdom will bring them back in. And when the rapture comes and the church is gone, he will start again to work through Israel and begin again to resume, I guess, better word, to resume blessing the earth through Israel. The last passage in chapter 11, I will read in its entirety here. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who was first given to him and has he repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. God is wise beyond imagination. And his sovereign will is completely good. Offering salvation to whoever. Now you must be wondering, what's the fourth one? Service? Well, 
Don't you love it sometimes in literature when you see the word therefore? And what, what do you begin to think when you hear the word or read the word therefore? You go back to something was written prior, right? You read something here, boom, 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 boom. And then therefore, page two. Therefore. Because of all this sovereignty and all this salvation and all the situation with the Jews and the mess they're in right this moment, despite all that, Therefore, I beseech you, the writer says, I beseech you by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto him. And don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. And then in chapter, excuse me, in verse 3, for by grace that's given to me, he talks about gifts. And that's why the last S is service. But he addresses all of us with that therefore. Therefore, because of what you are, because of all that I've written that's been in chapters 9, 10, and 11, Therefore, do his work. Serve him. It's the greatest service you'll ever do. The most worthwhile service you'll ever do. Serve him. Be obedient. I mean, the language of the verse puts the burden and the onus upon us to do what we should do to take whatever gift or gifts we have and to do the will of God. What's the will of God? To know him and to make others know him. It's called the Great Commission. And Jesus has said, I will be with you wherever you go. You'll have my authority every step of the way. I'm with you always even to the end of the world. So from the anguish and sorrow, we go to, through the sovereignty, the salvation, and then on the other side, as we get into the, the, the practices of the gospel, the practices, he starts off. Be the people you should be. Be the people you have every power to be. I beseech you, strong language, I plead with you, both Jew and Gentile, be the people you can be. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your word, the clarity of it, even when someone who presents it is not that good. It doesn't matter. Your word is still great. So I just lift this group to you and ask that you would do great and mighty things in our midst, that you would take us to different levels of maturity. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. To every question.